Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here at Boston Private. Today I'm joined by three individuals who have distinguished themselves in the impact investing space. They represent three different family offices and just happen to be principals in those family offices as well. They will share their unique insights as investors and pioneers in the impacting uh, impact investing world today. Our conversation will touch on how and why our guests got into impact investing, uh, trends in the in impact investing space vis-a-vis family offices, and the state of impact investing during COVID-19. And we'll finish up with some best practices for family offices looking to start or deepen uh, their impact investing activities. Let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Justin Rockefeller. Justin, give us a quick snapshot of your background. So I, for the past eight and a half years, have been the global director of family offices and foundations at Adapar, which is a financial technology company helps wealth managers understand um, what they own and also what their money is doing in the world. And then for nine years, I served on the board and the investment committee of Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which is a private family foundation that has and deliberately aligning its endowment with its mission. And I also co-founded and chair the Impact, which is a global membership community of families committed to aligning their values and their assets. Uh, this is a, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help families make more impact investments more effectively. And the reason we exist is to improve the probability and the pace of solving social and environmental problems by increasing the flow of capital to investments that generate measurable social impact. Thanks, Justin. Uh, my next guest is Liesl Pritzker-Simmons. Liesl, give us an overview of your experience. Sure. Um, I am the co-founder and principal of Blue Haven Initiative, which is uh, the single family office that I run with my husband, Ian. Um, and Starting about 10 years ago, we are both, we're both inheritors. Um, uh, I'm second generation um, of my family. Uh, and uh, we started about 10 years ago um, to morph the, all of the assets in our family office to be intentionally invested for impact. Um, and that uh, ranges across asset classes and sort of capital types. And we, we try and rope our philanthropy in there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we're one of one of the first family offices to go all in um, with all of our assets. Thank you. And our final panelist uh, is Samuel Bonse. Sam, uh, give us a quick summary of your career. So I'm the uh, executive director of the Impact today. Uh, the Impact is a global community of families committed to aligning their assets with their values. Justin and Lethal are co-founders of The Impact. Uh, So I've been working with them for the last uh, six years now uh, to build that community. I'm also on the board and investment committee of uh, my family's family office called Keller Enterprises. Thanks, Sam. Well, let's let's dig in with some definitions. And uh, let's start with everyone's definition around impact investing. This is a can be a, an area where there's a lot of differentiation, and I'd be curious to see uh, what everyone's thoughts are on this one. So, Lisa, let's let's start with you. How do you define it? Sure. So, I, I it would I must begin, of course, with the GIN's definition of impact investing. So, that's the Global Impact Investing Network. Um, 
And it's the definition that I think most impact investors have rallied around. So technically, impact investments are investments made with the intention to generate positive, measurable, social, and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Um, but in practice, and to me, what that really means is taking responsibility for um, factors beyond just the financial performance of your investment. So every investment out in the world is doing something. Um, of course, it has financial characteristics, um, but it's doing more than that. So if it's a real estate development, if it's a municipal bond, if it's a public equity, um, there are other factors at play that that investment um, is touching and generating. And so to me, um, being an impact, an impact investor is, first of all, understanding what those things are. So knowing what your investment is doing out there in the world. And secondly, taking responsibility for it um, and saying the social and environmental outcomes of that investment are actually part of my purview as an asset owner and as an investor. Justin, how would you define impact investing? So I think it's actually not productive um, to list out different definitions. And uh, it is true that impact investing can mean different things to different people, but I would encourage listeners to not get bogged down in the terminology and think of impact investing more as a framework. Uh, part one for me is just this very simple notion that it's an investment, right? Uh, impact is actually just an adjective des describing investment. So you intend to get your money back and then some. It's not charity, it's not philanthropy. The second notion, as Liesl touched on, is that there should be some form of measurable uh, social impact. And I absolutely agree with her that uh, while definitions can, can vary slightly, um, that the idea is one that really gets back to this notion that what people do with money has moral consequences. And as you think about what your money is doing in the world, it might make sense to try to align those actions, what your money is doing in the world, with the values that you hold. Thanks, Justin. Sam, uh, your thoughts, how, how do you look at impact investing and what does it mean to you? Well, I disagree completely with everything Liesl and Justin have said. Um, no, <laughs> uh, uh, I agree completely with everything they said. And the only thing I would add, um, Liesl referenced the GIN a moment ago, the Global Impact Investing Network. And uh, I was looking at their website recently, and on it, the, the welcoming image uh, has some text written over it. And the text is, what world are you investing in? Question mark. And uh, I just love that question because I think it gets at the two essential elements um, of impact investing that, that Will and Justin and I spend so much time focused on. And like you can get to that through the two ways that question can be read. I think the first way is, you know, sort of positive, future-looking, really builds on the idea of investing to solve problems. We're investing in a brighter future. We're investing to solve 
the social and environmental issues that we care most deeply about. Uh, I think the second way that I at least read that question is like, what world are you investing in? You know, and there's, I think the uh, the implication of or the implied question of reality, and uh, it certainly is my belief that the reality is that every company in the world has um, significant social and environmental impacts through the products and services that uh, the businesses offer, through the ways that they uh, interact with the social and ecological contexts in which they exist. And also, you know, social and environmental megatrends have material financial effect on companies in the long run. And I think a big part of uh, the impact investing movement today is really about bringing investing practice of all kinds uh, into alignment with that reality in recognition of the world we invest in, which is a world in which uh, the climate is changing and inequality is growing, and there are myriad other social and environmental challenges that we face, business can be a force uh, to solve those and finance as a tool to address them. And uh, if that's not your fancy, you still need to be thinking as an investor about the ways that those social and environmental forces are going to act on your investments in the long run as well. Thanks, Sam. I think, uh, you know, to piggyback on that, that question, I think uh, part of uh, what could be interesting to folks listening today is the, the genesis of everyone's interest in this space and, and why uh, they got into it, as well as the how. Uh, maybe we can go around and, and ask uh, everyone here today how and why uh, you got into impact investing in the first place. And Justin, could we start with you? Sure. So one of the fun parts of working in the impact investing world and working with families is the very clear realization that every family is different and every family and indeed every individual has a different path into this space. Um, I haven't seen many people become enamored of this idea of aligning values and investments check it out for a while, and then kind of leave and decide it's not for them. Uh, they tend to get deeper into this idea and wonder, how can I extend this to other parts of my life, for example? The way that I earn money, the way that I spend money, and uh, the way that I donate money. So it's become sort of an ever-increasing, enveloping concept uh, from most people that I've seen. So. My own version of that is going to be different from anyone else's, but uh, it was meaningful to me. So I grew up in a household where, think of it more of a traditional household, kind of a puritanical household where um, money wasn't discussed very often. And I knew that I had the surname Rockefeller. I knew that my great-great-grandfather had built a very impressive uh, business called Standard Oil. And beyond that, we didn't talk too much about money. And then I, I went off to university and a college professor uh, of philosophy named Peter Singer implanted a very simple notion for me that had much more profound ramifications in, in my life than I probably would have realized when I signed up for the course. 
which is that what people do with money has moral consequences. That's a whole nother podcast. Uh, but uh, for me, that meant I really want to learn about the scale of the capital markets because I had grown up around politics. I had spent a lot of time uh, working on NGOs, nonprofits, and met a lot of social entrepreneurs. And I realized that these heroes of mine had similar frustrations, which is that they spend a lot of time fundraising and less time on the work itself. And in order to solve some of the major intractable problems that humans face today, think of climate change and poverty and access to basics like healthcare and education and water and food and opportunity, uh, these require the scale and the efficiency of the capital markets. Um, so I started very simply, I um, started to talk to people and I um, went to advice, went, went to certain friends for advice. And then I ended up as a colleague of someone named Jed Emerson, who for decades wrote about this concept of blended value. And then in 2007, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation largely uh, led an effort that uh, uh, that the term impact investing was born out of and said there's a lot of similar efforts in this space, but people need to kind of rally behind common terminology here. And so the, the space, even though it had existed in different forms for many years, started to kind of congeal around that time and become more organized. And that was when I moved into a, uh, a financial firm that had as part of its model that 25% of the GPs carry would pass through a foundation that would invest in social businesses. Um, and then a few years later, I joined the board of Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and we started to align the endowment of that institution with its mission in several different ways, uh, one around fossil fuels, one around diversity and inclusion. and. So then I was hooked. <laughs> Other families started coming to me um, and asking me for advice, uh, as I used to do for them. And that's kind of how the ecosystem evolves. So I think I'm a fairly typical story with a fairly atypical last name in that the more I started to, to get into it, the more I was getting into it. And then the more I learned and the more I was able to help other people and the more I cared about the ecosystem. That eventually led with several others uh, to the founding of, of the Impact, an organization you know, we can talk about in more detail later. Um, but it's been a personal journey for me and then also one very focused on building out the ecosystem and spreading the ideas. Thanks, Justin. Sam, uh, how and uh, why did you get involved in Impact Investing? Well, my family's legacy businesses are in oil and gas and timber and agriculture. And so I think really from the moment in life that I became conscious of the, the existence of those businesses and their effect on my family's life, uh, I also... Uh, became acutely aware <laughs> of the impacts, negative and positive, uh, that those businesses and the industries in which they existed were having on the communities and the 
environment in which they existed. And so I think that this question of the relationship between business and the social and ecological context in which it exists was really the that was a setting in which my whole understanding of business was formed. Um, and uh, fast forward uh, a couple decades, and after college, I uh, was living and working in Tanzania. I had helped to start a social enterprise working with smallholder farmers uh, there. And, you know, day in and day out was trying to help some of the poorest people in the world start businesses that could sustain their livelihoods. And I was up close and, and personal with the the opportunity there and also the immense challenges. Um, and in that time, in parallel, um, my family was really going through a process of reassessing uh, its investment activity. And we had always really held strongly to this idea that Part of our family business legacy was a legacy of mission and values-driven business. And uh, I think we, as a family, really inspired by my grandmother uh, in the last couple of decades of her life, um, she put the question to us of, you know, what would it mean for us as a family to um, reimagine or reinvent that legacy of values and mission-driven entrepreneurial investing, um, given the realities of the world in which we live today. And so as a family, we started um, moving out of our legacy businesses and primarily investing in renewable energy, uh, clean tech, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, sustainable real estate. And I think I experienced uh, in that context how deeply meaningful it was for us as a family to be engaged in that exercise, how unifying it was for us. Um, we <laughs> happened to start moving out of oil at absolutely the right time, the, you know, the historical peak of the market. And so uh, it proved to be a very beneficial uh, transition for us financially. And I think it really inspired um, interest in engaging with uh, the family wealth among, you know, my generation of the family that frankly might not not otherwise uh, uh, have occurred. And so, as I was reflecting all that on all that personally, I met Justin and his good friend Josh Cohen, and shortly after, uh, Liesl. And you know, as they were formulating the idea of building a community of families gathered around this common commitment, this common passion for aligning investments with values, uh, it made just immense sense to me personally uh, and also professionally. Thanks, Sam. Lisa, what was your why and how when it comes to uh, when it came to impact investing? Um. Yes, I mean, I think I think sort of similar. I think that um, you know, also there's there's often our generation, which we're all sort of in the in the millennial camp here. Um, you know, I feel like whenever you read the PwC reports that define millennials, there's this this sort of yearn for holistic kind of 
sort of blending of things together. Um, and I feel that very strongly with how I came into impact investing as well. Um, so I, um, I inherited control of my assets when I was 21, um, which was in 2005. Um, and I was in a pretty unique situation where I basically got everything I was going to get, no strings attached. Um, and I had total control over it, which I know is, is pretty weird in the family office space, but that's how it happened. Um, I was in college at the time, and I was quite interested in international development um, and knew that, you know, in some way, shape or form, I wanted to use uh, these assets to, towards that in some way, but had no idea what that really kind of would look like. Um, so I did what you're told to do when you are in a very fortunate financial position and um, you want to sort of quote unquote give back. So I set up a foundation um, and uh, uh, sort of just before that, I had spent some time also in Tanzania um, and, and uh, in Ghana uh, working at a microfinance institution. Um, and so, you know, that's a uh, basically a, a, a type of bank that lends usually to micro entrepreneurs and small businesses. Um, so I was, I was interested in that and saw markets working um, to benefit people's businesses. Um, and so actually our foundation, which my mother runs, um, but I worked with her uh, for about four years on that, actually focused on lending to low-fee private schools in Ghana. Um, and what many people don't know is that in many parts of the developing world, um, private schools actually pay, play an incredibly important function in educating uh, low-income rural populations because public schools can often be too far away or hard to get to or overcrowded. And so people sort of set up their own schools and they're technically private schools, but they look and feel nothing like um, what, what an American might think a private school is. Um, and so they need access to capital as well. Um, and so we started a program in Ghana, partnered with a microfinance institution that uh, created a, a really holistic program that sort of lent to these schools improved their school management practices, teacher and parent engagement, all this sort of stuff. But um, this was a, a lending program. It was a microfinance program. And the bank we were working with also, you know, as banks do, access the capital markets in order to finance their endeavors. And so what I was kind of starting to realize was, okay, hang on. So I'm, we're using my foundation is working with this MFI that's accessing capital markets um, that are investing into this MFI. Um, I actually have this other money I could invest. Could I possibly invest in this MFI um, through, you know, microfinance investment vehicles, which actually have been around since the 70s? Um, and I brought this idea to my financial advisors at the time, and they thought I was crazy. Um, and and, um, you know, didn't understand how, how, you know, currency exposure worked and didn't, you know, understand the risks. And um, really, I should just leave all of that to my philanthropy. Um, and I started to get increasingly um, frustrated that 
So I had taken 10% of my assets to set up this foundation. And as you know, in the United States, foundations have a 5% payout rule. So in essence, I was spending 100% of my time on 5% of 10% of my assets. And a light bulb went off when I kind of did that math. And I was like, this is, this is completely turned around. Um, I should be using the bulk of my investment assets um, to look for opportunities where markets can have a really big impact um, and then let my philanthropy fill in the gaps. It should really be the other way around. I should be focused on this investment portfolio. Um, but again, at that point, so the light bulb went off, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so similarly, Jed Emerson played a large role in, um, in sort of holding my hand through um, really crystallizing, okay, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? Um, putting together, you know, a set of advisors that could help me actually, actually do this and didn't think I was so crazy. Um, and so that's really kind of how we, it, it was just realizing that, that I want all of my assets to have the most leverage I possibly can, not just a teeny sliver of something. Um, I want to pay attention to everything. Um, and so it's been, it's been a long process and I was very lucky to kind of have this light bulb moment sort of just around the time that as Justin was alluding to, um, a group of people got together and decided that impact investing was going to have a name. It was going to have a network like the gym and we were going to sort of formalize this industry a little bit more. So it was sort of right all at that moment. Um, and so I, I walked into a world that was still, you know, it took a while to, to build the portfolio out, but um, I kind of benefited from all of this precursor work that people had done. And then over the years, as, as Justin has said as well, really tried to pay attention to not only how can I, how can I build out my own portfolio, but how do we help other people do this too? And, and get a, you know, we're much stronger when there's a broad coalition of people who are pushing for these sorts of changes in financial markets. And so that's part of why um, I was excited to, to join the impact. Thanks, Lisa. Justin, uh, let's change gears a little bit and talk about today and the pandemic. Um, how has COVID-19 uh, you know, affected impact investing? So, it's kind of amazing to see all this play out in real time here. Um, I think it's become pretty clear to most investors that financial performance and risk are inextricably linked. And uh, this is a clear example of that, right? Uh, I think it's fair to say that in the long term, social and environmental factors are major drivers of risk mitigation and, and success. And, and that generally speaking, um, Companies that proactively respond to factors such as climate change and economic inequality and resource scarcity are going to outperform companies that don't. Um, multiple peer-reviewed studies have, have showed this to be the case. Um, so to me, this is sort of one example of this. Uh, COVID, uh, it's not as simple as saying, well, I choose to invest in the company 
that is going to have the vaccine, right? <laughs> uh, that, that would be nice if you have the ability to, to identify that and make it happen, but that's going to be pretty rare. Uh, it's also um, the case that ESG investing, which uh, maybe your listeners will have heard that term, think of it really just as, um, as a risk mitigation strategy uh, for impact investing. Uh, when you think about what could happen in the world and what those things could do to your portfolio, um, you're really thinking about risk mitigation. And when you try to incorporate those type of elements into your investing, uh, you know, that this is a, a smart way to invest. And I think that unfortunately, a pandemic was fairly predictable. The nature and the intensity of a pandemic uh, is is going to change. We've had pandemics without these type of economic uh, consequences in the past. Um, but more broadly speaking, I mean, there, there are certain themes that have emerged from this. One is, it just seems very clear now that um, there are holes in our social and economic fabric um, that tie back to the economy and that uh, investors can try to fill those holes in a sense. Um, there are plenty of concessionary, meaning below market rate lending opportunities to uh, CDFIs um, and a way to think of uh, getting hands um, that need it, uh, capital, right? Uh, small businesses, hard hit communities. And then when you think globally, not just the United States, uh, think of countries that have problems around health infrastructure um, and safety nets uh, that, that, that lack kind of consistent availability of, of good jobs and resilient food systems. Uh, these are all opportunities for impact investors to invest in emerging markets and in these themes that will make certain countries um, in, for example, the Southern hemisphere more resilient to uh, you know, events like, like, uh, like this pandemic. So it, to me, it, it just exposes the need um, for impact investing. And it also shows very clearly where some of those opportunities are. Thanks, Justin. Sam, you know, in terms of uh, the overall impact investing industry, uh, Lisa and Justin talked about, you know, kind of the, the folks that have been trailblazers in this, in, in you know, sector in the in sort of piece before. But how has the industry changed in the last five to ten years? Well, in some ways, enormously. Um, I think uh, I'll try to summarize it uh, concisely. I mean, bottom line is. The marketplace is growing very rapidly uh, and consistently across the board. Um, I think that one of the, the essential themes of that growth has been a kind of convergence of what were initially two distinct trajectories, one emerging out of the philanthropic world as philanthropic organizations sought more creative ways to use uh, their assets to accomplish their goals. Um, and so impact investing as a philanthropic tool um, was a big part of the early narrative. Um, a lot of 
you know, creative investment structures or high-risk investments in, um, you know, frontier markets or getting capital to communities that have long and unjustly been starved of that capital. Um, that was really one important trajectory. And then really in a completely different corner of the market, you know, we've seen an explosion of growth in the ESG investing world. So, you know, very conventional asset managers uh, getting increasing market pressure uh, to demonstrate that they are incorporating um, environmental, social, and governance factors into their investment decisions um, as a way to, as Justin uh, described, reduce risk and position assets to grow uh, in the long term in a world, again, with the changing climate, growing inequality, et cetera. And those two distinct trajectories within the market, I think, over the last uh, five years have converged to create a large and diverse and, at times, confusing marketplace. Um, and a good example of that uh, convergence is, you know, many of the blue-chip private equity uh, fund managers, uh, you know, Bain, uh, TPG, KKR, Carlyle, et cetera, you know, they have all developed impact investment branded funds or hired, you know, heads of impact or given increasing prominence to the role of head of ESG within their firm. And um, that is a really exciting development in a lot of ways. It shows the, the mainstreaming of the industry, demonstrates, you know, the recognition of the essential truths behind the market that so many have been uh, pushing on for many years. I think there's also concern, um, you know, about the impact, the actual measurable additional impact um, that, that, uh, that that's actually occurring um, in those contexts where investors are trying to, you know, generate um, risk-adjusted rates of return and uh, show some impact as well. And so as that, uh, as you've seen more heavy-hitting uh, firms in the conventional finance world get hip to this game, I think you're also seeing, um, you know, some really interesting developments on the fringes just as people try to build out the really impact-focused uh, segment of the market. People looking at, you know, whether it's foundations or family offices um, or other uh, asset owners and asset managers looking at more creative investment structures, pushing further and further into frontier markets, again, with the goal of creating impact that wouldn't have otherwise happened. So long story short, immense growth in the market. We have seen the mainstreaming of the field that so many talked about um, kind of in the early years. Um, that has created excitement and confusion. I think now as more and more funds proliferate in um, each little niche of the market, I think people are really starting to push on this question of where's the impact? How do we know that we're actually accomplishing this, the things that we say we are setting out to accomplish when we deploy capital in this way? Great. Uh, Justin, let's, let's switch gears and talk about strategy a little bit. What are some best practices for families that are looking to organize 
you know, their portfolio around impact investing, whether they want to kind of, you know, dip their toe into the water or, you know, invest fully um, and whether or not they're new to the space or have been experienced with uh, impact investing. Sure. So uh, this is going to sound a tiny bit self-serving, but I would actually recommend that people go to the impact.org Reminder, this is uh, an NGO. These are free materials, so we have nothing to sell. But uh, you, you realize you don't have to go this alone. Uh, as, if, if you're interested in impact investing, uh, you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel and figure all of this out for yourself. Uh, there are other families who have been down this path and want to trade notes and share best practices um, and frankly, the mistakes that they've made as well. And the reason I suggest the website is in part because we have compiled a library of resources, all free. Uh, So these are PDFs that if you just click on it, it downloads. And we have asset class specific primers, sector specific uh, primers and reports. We have case studies, we have videos from families. All of this is free and available to watch. And quickly, again, what you realize is that there's a wealth of materials that are available for you so that you can start to dig in and learn about specific uh, sample impact investments and hear about how families have have gone down this journey. Um, The the second sort of major piece of advice I would offer is to speak directly to your financial advisor, right? Um, If you get a sense from speaking to your financial advisor that he or she is not interested in helping you down this path, it might be time to think about uh, a new financial advisor (laughs) to to take your money where your interests lie, frankly, um, and to to work with someone who you think can can grow with you, even if that person isn't an expert today, so to speak. Um, The impact itself has laid out a series of steps um, that that we think are, are very helpful for families going down this path. Um, no need to go into too much detail here, but this is sort of what we do as an organization is we, we work with families who are at the beginning of this journey, somewhere uh, in the middle of this journey, and some like uh, experts like Liesl and Sam who are towards the to the end of the journey, but but have aligned almost fully their values and their investments, um, really their their, their resources. So generally speaking, it starts with, uh, you know, defining kind of your own own values, uh, what you care about in terms of business and investing in philanthropy. Um, And then it becomes a family conversation, Uh, maybe one with your family business as well. what are what are the stakeholders out there of, of, of your work um, and how can you work together with them? Um, it becomes finding a investment professional to work with, uh, as I described earlier. Uh, then it becomes actually forming an investment policy statement, translating the, the, the why um, and, and your goals and, and kind of your needs into an IPS. Um, and that's reflective of some of what you're, you're mapping out here for yourself. Um, and then it becomes actually a literal mapping exercise of, of what you own. This is part of 
the reason I work at, uh, at Adapar, because it's a company that helps you understand what you own. <laughs> it's actually a very difficult question for many families with, for example, 17 different legal entities and cash in 37 different places, and they're tracking 50 managers. Uh, it, it becomes actually quite difficult to know what you own and how what you own aligns with your values. Uh, so that's a very important exercise. Um, the, the process continues, but it, it's sort of further enhancing uh, your understanding of what you want to do, how money can help you do that, uh, again, through uh, figuring out what the positive and negative impacts of your, of your money um, are in the world. And then eventually it, it ends up with so thinking about the ecosystem, right? Not just your own portfolio and not just that of your family, um, but the ecosystem as a whole and what actions you can take to get others to do this and, and work with other families to, for example, influence larger pools of capital. So all, all of this is available at theimpact.org. Um, and uh, we hope that it's we've been deliberately putting together this, this library of material that we think will help families uh, move from interest in the space into action and then organizing other families as well. So Lisa, uh, Justin gave us a, a roadmap and some recommendations there. You know, what happens when you get a little bit further down the roadmap and you have to source these investments and deals? Where do you look to and, and how do you go about sourcing impact investing opportunities? Well, just to just to sort of second a lot of the things that that, that Justin said around this is a it's a process and it's and it's iterative, um, and so even though I'm sort of ten years into my um, my own journey in this space, it's constantly constantly evolving. Um, and so one thing just before I touch on sort of deal sourcing and 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 some of the mechanics. Um, I think one of the most important parts of coming into this space is to come in with a spirit of, of humility and inquiry. Um, you're never going to get it right. <laughs> There's never going to be a perfect investment that ticks 100% of every one of your boxes, um, as well as all of your family members' boxes. It's, it's, it, it is still, at the end of the day, normal investing, right? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get things wrong. And I think um, coming in in learning mode, um, I think one of the things that I struggle with when I talk to people who um, are just immediately turned off or they have these assumptions about the impact investing space um, that are actually not rooted in any genuine research. They just sort of make an assumption that there's no way that, you know, ESG public equity investments could have the same return. And when you ask them, you know, oh, what, what, what research are you citing? They can't cite it. And so I think coming in saying I'm, I'm actually willing to learn about this is, is a precursor for any of this. Um, and also that I'm willing to, be, to, to, to change things along the way. We've been doing a whole lot of of introspection lately in terms of our own sort of diversity and inclusion practices in our investing, um, uh, particularly in light of what's, what's going on recently. So um, there's always more to be done. Um, so 
Um, that being said, around the the, the sourcing and um, uh, and selection, um, luckily the space has grown tremendously um, since sort of the days when I started out. And you do have, as, as Sam mentioned, even some of the larger, really well-known, you know, private equity firms and public equity managers that have, you know, almost, I mean, a majority of them must at this point have some type of ESG offering. And so one way to sort of start is even to work within the relationships that, you already have. They may have an ESG or an impact offering at this point or are working on one or developing one that you could co-create with them. Um, we have found fund managers to be extremely um, uh, interested in developing new products when we ask for them. I think the market demand is clear enough now um, that this would be a good thing to do. So you could even have a hand in co-creating something with a manager that you already have an existing relationship with. Um, and then in terms of, uh, in terms of deal flow for us, so we have, um, uh, you know, a selection of funds that we invest in both public and private. Um, and we work with our financial advisors, which is the, um, the imprint team within Goldman Sachs for that sourcing. Um, and, and that particular imprint team has been in the impact space for a very long time. And so um, are well known and, and they, they see a lot. So we feel like we're getting a good selection there. Um, and then in terms of our direct investing, um, we, uh, we run that in-house. Um, and that is a strategy that's um, actually focused on fintech and logistics businesses um, in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so that's a very specific market. Um, and we, you know, through our, through our networks, accelerators, you know, founders refer founders, um, you know, probably your typical kind of VC deal flow apparatus there, um, just sort of hitting the ground and seeing what's going on. Um, we leverage invest, we have, you know, worked very closely with our co-investors. Um, and, uh, but I, I mean, I would say though, I feel like sometimes when, when, um, I talk to new impact investors, everybody wants to know, um, well, where's the big database with all of the impact investments in there? And I can just search and then I click on it and then I can invest. Um, and just the same as normal investing, uh, that doesn't exist. That's not how it's done. The way we source deals is very similar to the traditional way. Um, uh, and that's, I mean, one of the things that's nice about having a network of family offices that are focused on this is we do a lot of informal deal sharing. Has somebody heard of this? What do people think of this industry? Um, and that can be very helpful as well, just as in the traditional world. So, you know, it's not, um, it's not super different, I'd say, than sort of traditional sourcing um, in that regard. So, uh, Elisa, just a, a follow-up on that. In terms of risk management, I mean, how do you combat some of the you know, the the risks around that, you know, in terms of deal flow, um, 
you know, potentially overlooking some issues that that come up in some of these investments, given the, you know, that they they do hit at some of the heartstrings uh, for these families. Uh, what have you found to be effective there? Well, so one of the things that I think about in terms of impact investing um, with due diligence, whether it's for a direct deal, you know, a startup company, or it's for a public equity manager, is um, our due diligence process is more rigorous than it was when we were traditional investors. Um, when we were traditional investors, we would just look at um, at the sort of financial attributes and spend less time on team, on, um, on sort of um, understanding where the founders or the managers sort of heart and head is at. Um, we didn't look at things like, yeah, makeup of the team, hiring practices, um, which actually are real material risks. And as anyone, I mean, just looking in the VC space, everything blows. I mean, it's all team, right? That's what makes things go wrong oftentimes. Um, and so I would say we, we spend more time in our due diligence process now when we consider all of these things. And also, where what are the intentions of our co-investors? Um, that's a very important piece of this as well. And making sure that you've got, you've got, um, you know, people all traveling in the same direction. Um, and so that we just sort of spend more time in that due diligence process up front um, and make that very explicit and make it clear that um, what is it that we want to see out of this investment? What is the thing that we think is most important? Um, and so uh, I think that intention setting early on is a risk mitigant. Um, but yeah, I also see that adding sort of more lenses to the investment um, only help us mitigate risk. So, you know, maybe when we were traditional investors, we didn't look at the climate risk of our investments. So, you know, you could be, you could invest in um, a solar array, you know, a, a, a commercial and industrial solar project developer. Um, but they're only operating in Southern Florida. So there's a lot of flood risk there. So the ESG factors may have been good, but the climate risk is very high. So I actually think that when you put more of these lenses on the investment, you, you, it's actually a risk mitigant. Um, and I mean, as we've seen in the COVID crisis, ESG investments in the public markets have done better. Um, I've been less volatile. And so I think, um, uh, to me, it's more, can you, uh, can you afford not to do this kind of investing? Are you willing to take the risk of not applying these lenses to your investment portfolio? Edward, if I may, sure. uh, I just want to emphasize two things that I have learned uh, from Liesl and Justin that have been immensely influential in my life and the way I think about investing personally and in the context of my family. First is uh, Liesl's line. She sort of touched on it a couple of times in this conversation, but that impact in investing is investing with higher standards, 
We are not lowering our standards of investment because there is emotional appeal to uh, you know, investing in response to issues that we care about. In fact, this is really about raising the standards uh, that we use to make investment decisions to incorporate material social and environmental factors or to more rigorously understand uh, the immense complexity of the social and environmental issues that we're trying to solve so that we can make the most efficient or the, the clearest, most effective capital deployment decisions in order to achieve our goals. So, sort of lesson number one from lethal, impact investing is investing, but with higher standards. Second, and related, I think one thing that Justin uh, always emphasizes is the importance of working continually to make more informed investment decisions. And, uh, you know, not too long ago, investors made decisions primarily based on one variable. They looked at the present value or the present cost of a stock, for example, and they looked at their assessment of future earnings and they said, wow, this looks like good value. Then we learned that we can mathematically incorporate risk into our assessment of investments and that transformed the investment management industry because it allowed investors to make more informed investment decisions. And I think we are uh, experiencing a comparable transformation of the market as investors and business leaders recognize that, um, again, in a world with uh, a changing climate, growing inequality, increasingly informed uh, consumer base, radically uh, greater transparency as a result of social media and journalism, changing uh, regulatory environments, you know, so on and so forth. For all these reasons, uh, again, social and environmental issues are material to the way that businesses operate. And so uh, you would have to be a bad investor, I think, in the long run. If you're a long-term investor and you're not thinking about these things, you are irresponsibly lowering the standards with which you are making investment decisions. You're consciously making less informed investment decisions. Uh, and that just sounds like a bad idea to me. So, Justin, in that vein, you know, there's certainly some common refrains and potential myths that uh, surround impact investing that, you know, returns have to be sacrificed or, you know, opportunities are you know, tend to be in emerging markets than things, you know, domestically or that it's, you know, just another form of philanthropy. What do you uh, how do you respond to some of those those myths and, and, and give folks some some uh, of your uh you know, perspective on them. Sure. So perhaps I could make a suggestion. I'll, I'll focus on one myth and maybe I can put Sam and Liesel on the spot to uh, think about whichever myth they want to debunk. So uh, for me, the we, we've been discussing performance. I'll just give you one tangible example. So uh, Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, which was the um, uh, foundation where I was on the board and the investment committee, clearly got its endowment from Standard Oil, right? Uh, the money came from oil. And 
we have operated as a traditional um, kind of family-run foundation, private foundation, since 1940. And we've had a diversified uh, endowment in terms of asset classes, always investing in energy. And yet about half of our grant making was applied to fighting climate change since roughly the year uh, 2000 or a little thereafter. So it felt somewhat akin to a cancer-fighting foundation investing in tobacco companies. Um, and we decided, you know, people out there think that um, you have to invest in fossil fuel companies. You have to kind of cover the broad sectors of, of the market. But we actually think financially that uh, that, that oil companies are overvalued because a lot of their market cap is based on the reserves that they hold in the ground. And to recognize the planet that we live on, we can't, uh, they can't burn all of that oil uh, from those reserves. So we think financially that those companies are overvalued. But also, of course, we think that morally, it's the right thing to do to divest of fossil fuels, even if someone else buys those shares. Because we as a foundation are fighting climate change, uh, we decided we just didn't want to own this stuff. We had tried shareholder activism for years uh, to little or, or no avail, frankly, um, uh, leveraging the, the, the surname Rockefeller and, and its ties to the fossil fuel industry. Um, still, we, we, we didn't have much luck with shareholder activism. So in this particular case, both for anticipated performance reasons, and then also for what we viewed as moral and, and, and consistency missions around our mission, we decided to start divesting of fossil fuels, uh, starting with coal and tar sands in February of 2014, when oil was about $106 a barrel. And I don't need to remind you that two months or so ago, um, oil at one point hit about negative $40 a barrel. <laughs> I know that was a, a, a blip, a uh, combination of factors, and it didn't last long, but, but even now, we're, you know, oil is in the 30s. So that ended up being a good financial decision for us, even though we had, I assure you, lots of naysayers at the time outside of the organization. So that's just one particular example with one particular myth. Um, I, of course, realized that the price of oil um, uh, goes up and down, but so far, that's proven to be a good financial decision uh, on our part. Thanks, Justin. Um, let's let's touch on uh, next gen, and I think this is an area that I think uh, I'd, I'd love Sam your thoughts on it in terms of engaging the next generation and your work with it. You know, certainly with your family and, and families and the impact. Do you see impact investing as as a, as a way that you can genuinely um, that families can work with next generations uh, to engage them. Uh, you're going to be shocked to hear that I definitely think the answer is yes <laughs> to that question. Uh, I'm highly biased, uh, of course, really because I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't be on this podcast right now if uh, this weren't true for me. Uh, the only reason why I care to be involved. Um, in the management of my family's wealth is because we are so committed to values-aligned and mission-driven investing. And I certainly don't want to speak for any of my other family members, but 
I think that that is widely the case uh, within my own family. Um, and so the, I got into uh, really the world uh, of wealth management and began learning about investing through the lens of impact investing. And that is a pattern that I see repeated in families all over the world every single day. Um, and Sam, in that, is there is there a good way to sort to do it? I, I'm sure you've seen ways that were less optimal uh, for engaging. Well, I think the um, Liesl spoke a little earlier just about the importance of humility, curiosity, and I think that speaks to the really the deep importance of learning. There are a number of initiatives and programs out there designed to train next-gens um, in impact investing. And uh, the three of us have all been connected to a program that started at Harvard um, for impact investing for the next generation. That's a partnership between Harvard and the University of Zurich. Um, I, it's a fantastic fantastic program. I think learning is step one. Um, there's book learning to do, of course. There's also learning by doing, um, you know, a classic uh, sort of method for training next gens is to set up a cousin's fund or, you know, carve out a portion of assets in order um, to give uh, next gen the opportunity to get their hands sturdy making and managing investments. That's absolutely something that we've seen families do that can be effective. Um, you know, there's there's really no uh, nothing comparable to the experience of sourcing investment opportunities, doing due diligence, making investment decisions, living through the consequences of those seeing what issues matter to businesses and how uh, their fates rise and fall um, over time. And obviously doing that with uh, a tolerable amount of money to lose is always <laughs> a, good, uh, a good idea, not because impact investments are more likely to lose money, um, but just because that's a, uh, a prudent way to go about the exercise. Um, but I think I would emphasize that Again, we see a lot of connections who would not be engaged with the family wealth, but for the fact that there's an opportunity to align that investment activity with their values, their sense of purpose, uh, and their aspirations um, for the world. So I think it's a hugely important uh, way to engage, to hook Next-gens to get them interested, but also a, a way to train them. Again, as we've emphasized throughout this conversation, all the normal rules apply uh, of investing within the context of impact investing. You can bring all of the rigor and all of the structure, all of the discipline, and then some. So no better way to learn how to do it and learn how to do it seriously. Thanks, Sam. Also, just to add... Yeah, just to add to what Sam was saying, um, in terms of of the next gen engagement, um, and we have seen just just a, a, a huge organic in, interest in this space amongst next gens, um, and varying degrees of success in engaging the decision making generation um, in in how to engage in this conversation. Um, and I think approach is everything. Um, 
if, if you're a next gen and you go to your parents or your aunt or your grandmother or whoever um, is, is, the, is the decision maker in your family and you say, you're doing it wrong, you need to be doing it this way, you're, you're probably going to get told to sit in the corner. Um, however, it's usually largely because of the family values, because the family um, has a strong sense of, of itself and the community, a strong sense of responsibility to its, to its stakeholders and the people they do business with, usually a strong sense of philanthropy and giving back, it's actually because of all of that that the kids are interested in having their money do more than just return itself. Um, and so oftentimes when you can actually articulate that why this is interesting, why this is important, it's actually because you have been listening. You've been listening at the dinner table. You've been watching what your parents and your grandparents have done philanthropically. And now you want to help to add to that legacy. That's a much more powerful way to, um, to sort of thread the needle through your family line um, and sort of say, and here's a new way we could do this and a new way that we can think holistically as a family. Um, but it's really based on principles that are, that are already there. Um, and it's just getting expressed with this new part of the portfolio. Um, I, we've seen that that is much more, um, a much sort of healthier way to engage as opposed to um, you guys have been screwing it up. <laughs> I think just the flip side of this also, you know, for the family office CIOs or wealth management professionals uh, out there, if you are struggling to engage um, you know, the rising generations of the families that you serve, uh, conversations about impact investing <laughs> are probably an effective way to do it. And again, what we hear so often from our peers is their deep frustration of feeling like their family office staff or, you know, their wealth managers aren't listening, aren't curious, don't respect um, their interest in impact investing or in sustainability more broadly are stuck in, you know, mindsets about uh, sustainable or responsible investing that were formed 30 years ago. Um, like that is a good way to lose business, you know. And so uh, I think it can be a very constructive way to initiate the conversation, to demonstrate that you care, to demonstrate that you're listening, to demonstrate that you're really committed to working holistically with your clients to understand the fullness of their interests, what they're passionate about, what they care about, what their financial objectives are, what they're concerned about in the world. Um, it's just a great tool. Thanks, Sam. You know, one of the things that, you know, you talked about earlier and uh, mentioned your work at The Impact, what are some other organizations and resources that family offices can leverage, uh, whether it's a community of family offices or others, or uh, that they can help, you know, to improve what they're doing or, or just get started into the space? Um, well, I, we've touched on uh, a couple already. Um, 
it spoke about the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network. They are, uh, you, you know, an industry association primarily for asset managers. They're constantly coming out with new research um, and uh, are kind of a voice for the industry. So I highly recommend checking out their work. Um, there are, you know, a growing number of uh, research units at uh, business schools or universities more broadly, um, the Center for Sustainable Finance and Private Wealth Management at University of Zurich uh, is really at the cutting edge of this, um, both in on the research side and in terms of training practitioners, training wealth managers, advisors, family office staff, and training family principals. Uh, the Initiative for Responsible Investment at Harvard uh, is another great source. They work in partnership um, with University of Zurich on the NextGen program uh, that I mentioned. There are also, um, you know, many wonderful other networks, our peers uh, in the space, some focused on foundations, uh, Mission Investors Exchange, Confluence Philanthropy for U.S.-based foundations. Uh, Tonic is a wonderful network of asset owners and investors who are deeply committed to impact investing. Um, so there's no shortage of great networks out there. There's a growing uh, wealth of research uh, available. And I think what, uh, again, we're biased, but I think what all of us would say is just, it, it's a space that is filled with wonderful people who are committed to helping each other, who are committed to collaborating um, and, and helping each other along this this journey. Thanks, Sarah. So as we uh, as we come to a close here, I wanted to ask everyone, you know, a, a quick piece of advice uh, that you would give to a family office, whether they're just getting started or they've been in this uh, in this space for a while and they, they're looking to improve their strategies. I think we talked about a lot of them, but if there's one key takeaway that you'd, you'd like to, to recommend, uh, what would that be, Justin? So I'll mention um, one practical one that, that has helped me, which is to go through the somewhat awkward exercise of, of thinking about your giving and actually assigning percentages to the causes that you care about. So first of all, if you list out your giving from the last year, You'll be surprised by how much you gave to uh, friends who asked. <laughs> People give to causes they don't necessarily care much about just because their friend asked them to. And when you really tally this up, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect the giving that you want to do because you care about an organization or, or, or a cause. So if you actually take the time, it could be 20 minutes, and list out the causes you care about and actually sign, assign percentages to those that should match your philanthropic giving, your charitable giving. Um, that's kind of what a foundation has done. So just pretend like you're a foundation with your personal giving. And that's probably a pretty good lead in to thinking about how you want to invest in line with your values. And I'm not saying that, you know, the causes are, are all investable opportunities, philanthropy and, and investing are different and um, they can complement each other and supplement each other, uh, but they are different fundamentally. But it's probably a, a good first step to think about what matters to you. And then you could look for opportunities um, uh, that, that match your interests. Uh, you could look for 
businesses where a poor business model, uh, positive financial return, and positive measurable impact have a linear correlation. Thanks, Justin. Sam, um, your piece of advice that you'd like to leave with families. Well, I am personally obsessed with investment policy statements <laughs> for reasons that I can't really explain. Um, but my so my advice to families is in the moment where you as a family or together with your um, investment professionals, whether that's single family office staff or external wealth managers, in that moment where you are having the conversation about your financial objectives, about your financial needs, your aspirations, your risk tolerance, uh, your time horizon, all of that, don't just stop there. That is a critical moment to bring in the question of what your values are, what social and environmental issues you care about, what problems you want your resources uh, to be going to solve, what your impact objectives are, what impact risks you're particularly uh, concerned about. Um, all of those things should be incorporated into a truly comprehensive investment policy or investment strategy. I don't think there's any good reason to leave them out of that process, and they typically are left out. Um, and I think building the impact into that, the foundations of your strategy increases the likelihood that you actually do the things that you aspire to do, that you hold yourself accountable, that you hold your investment partners and managers uh, accountable. Um, and it transitions this conversation about impact investing away from one of really being focused on investment products to one that's really rooted in the idea that impact investing is a way of investing. It's a way of investing with higher standards. It's the, the methodologies are applicable to every single investment decision that you're making. And again, the investment policy is the place that that happens. The conversation with your wealth manager is again about your objectives, your risk preferences, et cetera. Don't leave out the conversation about values, mission, uh, and impact. Thanks, Sam. And Lisa, uh, over to you to, to close us out. What's the one quick piece of advice you'd like to leave with family offices today? Um, well, I, just to sort of bring it full circle, I'd say recognize that whether you know it or not, you already are an impact investor. You're just not measuring your impact yet. Um, and I mean that both in terms of positive impact and negative impact. And so the first place to start is try to understand what's already in there. As we've said, what are your investments already doing? And I, honestly, you'll be surprised about some of the great things that they're doing in there. If you've got a diversified portfolio, you're going to be real happy with some of the things in there. But you might also discover some things that are, that are actually undermining um, your values or issues you say you care about. Um, and so the exercise of going through what you own and understanding that whether or not you're measuring it, it's happening. And so why not measure it so that you can start to move things to be more aligned with what you say you want to do in the world? 
Um, so that's that's how that's how I would start. Thanks, Lisa. That, that's great. Hey, well, thank you to everybody, Lisa, Sam, and Justin. You, you certainly covered a lot of ground today. I really appreciate your thoughtful insights. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with our guests or have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more right in your inbox. Learn also about how we uh, help family offices. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Thank you again to our panel and thank all of you. Uh, for joining us. Well, that's it for today. Check back for a new podcast next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW, nor its investment professionals or representatives, provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.